Mr. Jones of the Manor Farm had locked the hen houses for the night, but was too drunk to remember to shut the pop holes. With the ring of light from his lantern dancing from side to side, he lurched across the yard, kicked off his boots at the back door, drew himself a last glass of beer from the barrel in the scullery, and made his way up to bed, where Mrs. Jones was already snoring. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. In this episode, we're exploring a novella that one could argue is the greatest political satire of the past century. Winner of a retrospective Hugo Award in 1996, voted the UK's favorite book from school in 2016, and chosen by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. It's a dark warning about tyrannical governments and the dangers of communism. First published in 1945, This is Animal Farm by George Orwell. Eric Arthur Blair, known by his pen name of George Orwell, was born on June 25th, 1903 in India to Ida and Richard Blair. His father, Richard, worked in the Indian Civil Service. Eric was the middle child between his older sister, Marjorie, and his younger sister, Avril. When Eric turned one year old, his mother took him and Marjorie to England. Apart from a brief visit in 1907, Eric did not see his father until 1912. After his school years, Eric spent time working with the police force in Burma before returning to Europe to live in London and Paris and become a writer. Inspired by Jack London's 1903 book, The People of the Abyss, Eric started to explore the poorer parts of the cities. This would culminate in his first full-length work published in 1933, Down and Out in Paris and London. Its target audience was the middle and upper class members of society, those who were more likely to be well-educated, and exposes the poverty existing in the two prosperous cities. Before the book was published, Eric sent his publisher a list of possible pen names to use because he did not want to embarrass his family over the time he spent living amongst the poorest of the poor in London and Paris. His choices included Kenneth Miles, George Orwell, and P.S. Burton. He decided on George Orwell because, quote, it is a good, round English name. The name was inspired by the patron saint of England, St. George, and the River Orwell, which was one of Eric's favorite locations. Now that we have the origin of his pen name, I'll use that going forward as more people are familiar with our author by that name rather than Eric Blair. So leading up to World War II, Orwell followed the political developments in Spain very closely. He was deeply concerned by Francisco Franco's rise to power, so he decided to travel to Spain to participate in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the Spanish Republic. 
While in Barcelona, he wrote, quote, I have seen wonderful things and at last really believe in socialism, which I never did before. While fighting on the front, a sniper shot Orwell in the throat. With blood pouring from his mouth and unable to speak, Orwell was rushed to a hospital. The sniper's bullet missed his corroded artery by the slimmest margin, and it was such a clean shot that it automatically carterized the wound. Orwell underwent electrotherapy to recover and was declared unfit for military service. With the situation getting worse in Spain, Orwell and his wife escaped from Spain and returned to England. Orwell wrote about his experiences in the Spanish Civil War in his book Homage to Catalonia, which was published in 1938 and, unfortunately for him, was a commercial flop. Orwell finally experienced worldwide success with the publication of Animal Farm. For the next few years after the publication of Animal Farm, he mixed journalistic work with writing his other most well-known work, 1984, which was published in 1949 to critical acclaim. Orwell's health declined sharply due to tuberculosis, and he died from a pulmonary artery burst on January 21st, 1950. Orwell left such a legacy on writing that most people know exactly what the word Orwellian means, an attitude and a policy of control by propaganda, surveillance, misinformation, denial of truth, and manipulation of the past. Doublethink and the Thought Police have also made it into popular vernacular. In his essay, Politics and the English Language from 1946, Orwell wrote about the importance of precise and clear language, arguing that vague writing can be used as a powerful tool of political manipulation because it shapes the way we think. In that essay, Orwell provides six rules for writers. Number one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which are used to seeing in print. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Number three, if it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Number four, and probably the one I was taught the most, never use the passive where you can use the active. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jarian word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And number six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. I'm sure many of you were taught a couple of those same rules in your English classes in school like I was. So I'm going to take a short break here, but when book blurbs returns, I'll touch on the Russian Revolution and talk about how Orwell satirizes it in Animal Farm. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Book Blurbs, everyone. 
In this episode, I'm discussing George Orwell's Animal Farm. Orwell wrote Animal Farm between 1943 and 1944. A German V-1 flying bomb destroyed Orwell's London home in 1944, and he had to spend hours sifting through the rubble to find his Animal Farm manuscript. Thankfully, it was somehow completely intact. In the preface of a 1947 Ukrainian edition of Animal Farm, Orwell wrote about how escaping from Franco's Spain taught him, quote, how easy totalitarian propaganda can control the opinion of enlightened people in democratic countries. This motivated Orwell to expose and condemn the Stalinist corruption of socialist ideals. A noble cause to be sure, but the timing of Orwell's completion of the manuscript from for Animal Farm made its publication challenging, to say the least. Publishers stayed away from Animal Farm because they feared it would damage the World War II alliance between the Soviet Union, the United States, and England. Publishers worried that the Russians might take offense at being portrayed as pigs. Orwell suspected that the British Ministry of Information, which was warning publishers against going forward with Animal Farm, had a secret Soviet agent on staff. Hence the difficulty he was experiencing in getting his book published. A publisher finally agreed to take on Animal Farm in August 1945, a little less than a month before the end of World War II. Fun fact for you, from 1952 to 1957, the CIA orchestrated Operation A Dinosaur, in which the agency sent out millions of balloons carrying copies of Animal Farm into the Eastern Bloc countries of Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia to influence their citizens during uh, the Cold War. The air forces of these countries attempted to shoot every single one of these balloons down to prevent the citizens from uh, obtaining copies of Animal Farm and getting any anti-communistic ideas. So what is Animal Farm about? Set in England at Manor Farm, anthropomorphic animals are sick and tired of working on the farm for their human farmer, a drunkard named Mr. Jones. One night, a widely respected elderly boar named Old Major calls for a meeting of the animals to discuss the dreams he has been having of rebelling and overthrowing their human masters. The animals sing an anthem sung to the tune of La Cucaracha and Oh My Darling Clementine, created by Old Major called Beasts of England, and Old Major dies a few days after this meeting. When Old Major dies, two pigs... Snowball and Napoleon assume command of the farm animals and drive away Mr. Jones, renaming Manor Farm to Animal Farm and creating an ideology known as animalism. The pigs come up with seven commandments that all animals at Animal Farm must obey. Number one, 
Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. And number two, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. And number three, no animal shall wear clothes. Number four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. And number five, no animal shall drink alcohol. Number six, no animal shall kill any other animal. Number seven, all animals are equal. Since many of the animals cannot read, the pigs distill these seven commandments to the maxim, four legs good, two legs bad, which the sheep on the, for- on the farm often bleed out. The animals also frequently sing Beasts of England after the rebellion, and they dig up Old Major's skull and salute it as a sign of respect and to remember the roots of the rebellion. Suzanne Golbin compares the singing of Beasts of England to the use of the conch in one of my other favorite books, The Lord of the Flies. The Beasts of England anthem creates this enthusiasm and unifies the farm animals. However, the idyllic nature of Animal Farm post-rebellion doesn't last very long. Snowball and Napoleon's rivalry for leadership of Animal Farm comes to a head not long after the humans attack the farm, and the pigs, with the fierce backing of the dogs raised by Napoleon, start to revise the rules of Animal Farm and become gluttonous in their hunger for more power and control. They eventually ban beasts of England, bury Old Major's skull, and even edit the Seven Commandments. Number four of the commandments becomes, no animals shall sleep in a bed with sheets. They change number five to, no animal shall drink alcohol to excess. Number six becomes, no animal shall kill any other animal without cause. And at number seven, the pigs change it to, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So they're clearly changing the rules so that they're covered for all the ways they're breaking the original commandments. They even changed the maxim of Animal Farm to four legs good, two legs better. Through the revision of the commandments, Orwell shows how easily a political dogma can be twisted into malleable propaganda. Going back to Suzanne Golbin's comparison to Lord of the Flies, the banning of Beasts of England like the destruction of the conch, symbolizes the loss of hope for a better life. By the end of the story, the other farm animals can't tell the difference between the pigs and their old human masters. Animal Farm surprised me with how dark and violent it got. One of the parts involving Boxer the horse was devastating. Although the narrator takes a neutral third-person omniscient point of view, the writing is still extremely powerful. 
Orwell doesn't bog down the story with detailed descriptions or flowery language. For example, in one sentence, Orwell writes, quote, Too late. Someone thought of racing ahead and shutting the five-barred gate. But in another moment, the van was through it and rapidly disappearing down the road. That simple, too late, is heart-wrenching in this scene and tells us all we need to know about how the animals are feeling. People may ask why Orwell didn't set this story on a Russian farm if it's a satire about the Russian Revolution. But he's making a point about the dangers of allying with Stalin and the culpability of the West by setting it in England. Speaking of Stalin, Napoleon, the tyrannical pig, is a clear stand-in for him. But what about the other characters and events in the story? The revolt of the animals against Farmer Jones is Orwell's analogy with the October 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. The Battle of the Cowshed has been said to represent the Allied invasion of Soviet Russia in uh, 1918 and the defeat of the white Russians in the Russian Civil War. The puppies controlled by Napoleon parallel the nurture of the secret police in the Stalinist structure, and the pig's treatment of the other animals on the farm recalls the internal terror faced by the populace in the 1930s. In Chapter 7, when the animals confess their non-existent crimes and are killed, Orwell directly alludes to the purges, confessions, and show trials of the late 1930s. Frederick's forged banknotes paralleled the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 1939, after which Frederick attacks Animal Farm without warning. The disagreement between the Allies and the start of the Cold War is suggested when Napoleon and Pilkington, both suspicious, each, quote, played an ace of spades simultaneously. So who were the other characters meant to represent in the book? Mr. Jones and his wife are stand-ins for Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra, who met a gruesome end when they were murdered by the Bolsheviks in 1918 in a basement. Old Major is an allegorical combination of Karl Marx, one of the creators of communism, and Vladimir Lenin the communist leader of the Russian Revolution and early, so, and early Soviet Union. Old Major's skull being put on display and saluted resembles Lenin's embalmed body being left in indefinite repose. Snowball represents Leon Trotsky. After the Russian Revolution, after the Russian Revolution, Trotsky served as the People's Commissar of Foreign Affairs. During the Russian Civil War, Trotsky helped lead the Red Army to victory. In Animal Farm, Snowball leads the animals to victory in the Battle of Cowshed. After Lenin's death, Trotsky's political party criticized the hierarchy and close nature of Stalin's Communist Party. In response, Stalin kicked him out of the Communist Party and then exiled him from Russia. 
Do you happen to be wondering what happens to Snowball after he disappears through the hole in the hedge in the book? Well, Trotsky ended up in Mexico until in 1940, Stalin sent a KGB agent to assassinate him. So we have a pretty good idea of what's in store for poor Snowball in the book. Squealer the pig holds a position similar to Molotov, but could be a more general figurehead for propaganda. The hardworking boxer the horse symbolizes the Russian working class. Moses the raven represents the Russian Orthodox Church. He regales animal farms inhabitants with tales of a wondrous place beyond the clouds called Sugar Candy Mountain. Quote, that happy country where we poor animals shall rest forever from our labors. His preaching to the animals heartens them, and Napoleon allows Moses to reside at the farm, quote, with an allowance of a gill of beer daily, akin to how Stalin brought back the Russian Orthodox Church during the Second World War. What's funny to point out is Moses kind of disappears from the story for a while. Um, He had been, you know, talking about this sugar candy mountain at the beginning of the book. Um, Then the the rebellion happens. Uh, Manor farm becomes animal farm. But after Napoleon's been in charge for a while, Moses reappears and starts preaching about sugar candy mountain again. So you have to wonder... Would the animals, if they were smarter or more intelligent, have picked up on this? You know, Animal Farm was supposed to be their sugar candy mountain, but Moses's reappearance and his uh, restarting of this talk of sugar candy mountain just goes to prove that, you know, with the current situation and leadership they have at Animal Farm, they haven't achieved sugar candy mountain. They've still got a long ways to go to get to the top of Sugar Candy Mountain and realize that happy country where poor animals are allowed to rest from their labors. The sheep demonstrate blind conformity and the hysterical crowd Stalin used to support him and drown out opposition. Instead of thinking for themselves, they just repeat slogans over and over and over again and their bleeding just uh, drowns out other animals. And even when a select few of the animals start to question the pig's leadership, you know, they almost forget what they were thinking of and lose their train of thought when the sheep just start going off and repeating their slogans. Mr. Wimper is the first human the pigs permit contact with. I think he serves as an allusion to all the Westerners who catered to the Soviet Union's interest for personal profit or gain. So it's really fascinating to sit down and analyze all these different characters and put them side by side to the real life history and see how they compare and contrast and connect with each other. Although one of my majors was history, I was mostly focused on American history so I was not as familiar with the Russian Revolution. Still, I was able to connect the animals with the real-life historical figures they represented easily enough. 
Orwell teaches his lesson with this story without making it feel like a lecture. Orwell was like a very accomplished essayist, and he could have easily uh, written this whole argument out in one of his traditional essays or collections of essays. But he knew to really get his point across and make a splash, fiction was the way to go. So Orwell beautifully portrays the literal definition of a revolution, the way a revolution is started to stop what is happening and then going full circle. It, this revolution comes to a point right back to where it started from. Just the face of power is changed in the end. Animal Farm is still relevant today, even though the Soviet Union isn't around anymore. So to wrap things up, if you're looking for a book about power and its ability to corrupt leaders, look no further than the slim book that is Animal Farm. Now let's get right into my rating. My scale from best to worst is bookshelf-worthy, buy, library, sparknotes, and pass. I am going to give Animal Farm the rating of bookshelf-worthy. And boy, would this look good on your bookshelf with some of the incredible covers this book has to offer. Mine was pretty nondescript, but just Google some images of other covers to see what I'm talking about. Plus, this book won't take up a lot of space on the valuable real estate that is your bookshelf. There are a couple of different film versions of Animal Farm out there if you're interested in checking those out. But just be aware that they take some pretty creative liberties and make sometimes quite a few changes to the story. I've also read that Andy Serkis is working to bring a motion capture animal farm to life, so I'll be interested to see how closely he sticks to the original novella. When it comes to George Orwell, most people will either read this, Animal Farm, or 1984 at some point in time at school. In my humble opinion, Animal Farm is the superior story and would be my recommendation as the starting point for those who are new to Orwell's fiction. It's simple yet masterful. It can be enjoyed as a fairy tale fable or dissected as a political allegory. In his essay, Why I Write, Orwell wrote that Animal Farm was the first book in which he tried, quote, to fuse political purpose with artistic purpose into one whole. I'd say he knocked it out of the park. Thank you for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs. I invite you to jump onto social media and follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at BookBlurbs19. You can also send an email to bookblurbs19 at gmail.com and you can record a voice message at www.anchor.fm slash bookblurbs. 
Please do me a favor and leave a rating for Book Blurbs on whichever podcasting platform you're using to help grow the podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Book Blurbs. Happy reading.